0: Out of the sixth pit of fraud up onto the embankment, Virgil has given our pilgrim Dante a tongue lashing. Quit acting like you got comfy pillows and coverlets. You got to get moving. This journey can only happen if your feet keep moving. And in fact, they are going to start moving. Again, in Inferno, Canto 24, line 61 through 78. Hi, I'm Mark Scarborough. This is the podcast Walking with Dante, the podcast that slow walks through Dante's masterwork comedy. As you know, if you don't know, yikes, you better go back and catch up with us or you can drop in here. We are down in the giant landscape of fraud that makes up the eighth circle of hell. We have come out of the subset of the hypocrites and are about to start into a another subset the seventh subcircle of the giant circles of fraud and before we get to this passage for today i want to talk just a little bit more about virgil i know we always drop a passage here and then go out into it but let's talk just a little bit more about virgil Virgil is the character in Flux. There is no other way to put it. Throughout comedy, Virgil will always be the character in Flux. The Pilgrim's dramatic movement and narrative thrust is, I don't want to say linear, that's too overstated, but it is a trajectory with Ups and downs along the way, but a trajectory toward a final vision of God. Virgil has no such end in sight. Virgil belongs in limbo, despite the fact that here he is down in fraud, wait till he gets up on Mount Purgatory where he really doesn't belong. But nonetheless, Virgil has no end game in place. And so his journey is more contorted, and his character is to look here's how it all works out if you think about it back with the hypocrites virgil didn't know the passage from the gospel of john chapter 8 verse 44 where the devil is called a liar and the father of lies and those mendicants those lay mendicant friars who they met in their gilded leaden cloaks had to school virgil on the gospel of john okay fair enough how could virgil know the gospel of john and yet only a few lines later when we entered canto 24 virgil is suddenly making reference to the wisdom of solomon chapter 5 verse 14 and maybe you could say okay virgil would know the quote unquote Old Testament. He wouldn't know the New Testament because at least the Old Testament would have been written when Virgil was alive. Okay, maybe, but then later in that same passage when he tongue-lashes the pilgrim Dante, he seems to quote from that bit, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak, or at least he riffs off that bit. That's from the gospel of Matthew. That's from chapter 26, verses 43 43. Interesting. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Is from the moment the disciples fall asleep while Jesus is praying right before his crucifixion, which is an interesting thing to think about in terms of delay or not being able to do what you're supposed to do. I mean, they're supposed Host to watch out while Jesus goes into Gethsemane and prays, and yet they fall asleep. And here's Dante out of breath on the ground. Virgil's quoting or riffing, he's not quoting, but riffing off a passage in the Gospel of Matthew, but he didn't know the Gospel. John, do you see what I'm saying? Virgil is in flux. The character is in flux. And you can look at this in two ways. You can say that Virgil is ad hoc. That is, Dante's just kind of making it up as he goes along, or Virgil is the character Dante needs at any given moment, and the ad hoc-edness is Dante's attempt as a poet to create the mentor he needs at any given moment, or that it's not ad hoc in any real sense of the word. What it is the difficulty of building this giant character of Virgil who will last longer in the poem than any other character who is as much a part of the poet's imagination as Virgil's poem, the Aeneid, and to a lesser extent, the Georgics, are reflected inside of comedy. It's so wild to think about building this completely fictional character of Virgil inside this allegedly inspired poem. So Virgil is in flux, and it's going to continue. So without any further ado, let's read Canto 24, line 61 through 78 in my rough English translation. You can find this on my website, MarkScarborough.com. Otherwise, here's the passage. We took the path up the ridge, which was craggy, narrow, altogether poor going, and way more precarious than the previous one. I was talking as I went along so I wouldn't appear to be worn out when a voice came out of the ditch, seemingly not capable of forming words. I don't know what it said since I would gotten to the apex of the bridge that crosses over at that spot, but the one who spoke seemed somehow to be on the move no matter how much i wanted to my sharp eyes couldn't make out the bottom down there because of the darkness so i said master when you get to the next embankment let's descend along the wall from this point i hear something but can't understand it i look down but can construe nothing the only reply he said that i'd give you is just to make it so for an honorable request should be met with an action done in silence. Okay, that's where we're gonna stop. And we're gonna look at several things in this passage. We're gonna kinda take it through it line by line and just look at it carefully. There's not a lot of difficulty here. Just some interesting things to note as they come toward the seventh of the evil pouches. So let's start out with the landscape itself. The passage we are on today starts, we took the path up the ridge, which was craggy, narrow, altogether poor going and way more precarious than the previous one. All of this descriptive adjectival bit that goes on about the passage, thinking about Edith Wharton, I'm actually teaching an Edith Wharton seminar in another piece of my life right now. And Wharton always said that when she rewrote her novels, when she was in the stages of revision, she was committing murderous atrocities on adjectives. Well, there's a lot of adjectives right here that perhaps could have some murderous atrocities committed on. Because they're all piled up, but it could be that they're piled up for a reason. It could be that the bridges, the reefs, and the structures are getting rougher the farther on down the circles of fraud we go. Interestingly, they're also getting more architectural with crowns and Apexes and abutments. They're starting to look more and more like classical keystoned bridges. I know we don't actually have a keystone, but I just mean in terms of the classical formation of a bridge, the crown, the abutment, etc. And yet at the same time, they seem to be getting rougher. This is an intriguing bit of narrative landscape. More jagged, but also more architectural or could we say rougher but more elegant if so that's a nice crux that's going on the bridges may and the crossings and the embankments may be getting rougher and more difficult that could be thematically the case but they're also getting more elaborately formed or they're looking like human structures it's an interesting crux that dante the poet has created here and i I think it probably holds out throughout the Malabolgia, and I like the, what do I want to say, the harmonics of it, the di- well, really, the dissonances of it, the more rugged is also the more elegant. Down they go, over this very narrow, rough outcropping, and Dante is, of course, still pretending that he's okay. I was talking as I went along, the passage goes on, so I wouldn't appear to be worn out, A voice came out of the ditch, seemingly not capable of forming words. We should note that Dante is still being a bit of a hypocrite here, talking as he went along so I wouldn't appear out of words. You know, I I do this too. My husband and I do a lot of hiking together. And um, let's just face it, I'm older now. And uh, hiking is a little rougher to me, especially on the grand ascents. And sometimes I'll admit that I fake talking just so that I don't appear to be as winded as I. I am. <laughs> I so desperately would like to be 24 again. <laughs> I, I understand the pilgrim's dilemma here. But still, it's interesting that this is still this motive of not wanting Virgil to see the truth or not wanting Virgil to understand how worn out the pilgrim is after that climb. And we should note that here, right here, at the beginning of the seventh of the evil pouches, we start with with speaking, with words. It's an emphasis on words. He's talking so he won't appear to be worn out and then a voice comes out that is not capable of forming words because the seventh of the malaboljo will be bracketed by words and it will end with words and an emphasis on words in the same way that the sixth of the malabolja opened with a mother grabbing her child out of the flames and ended with my lungs were milked of their air. Again, there seems to be ways in which the front and the back of these evil pouches are becoming more and more structured, more and more, dare we say it, Architectural, like the bridges, the architecture is becoming more obvious and more pronounced inside the poem, as well as the landscape in which the narrative is taking place. What can we say about this thing, this voice that comes out seemingly not capable of forming words? Robert Hollander, the late and eminent Dantista, claims that the answer to this, who is this, that saying something not capable of forming words won't actually be found until Canto 25, line 18. We're going to be here in the seventh pouch for a long time, all the way out through Canto 25. Hollander claims that this is not answered until then. I don't think I buy that. I think that there is a way that the malformation or the poor formation or the inability of the formation of words is important as a starting point, particularly before we hit well, the next episode of this podcast and the passage right ahead of us. I think it's really important to see that the poet is able to make words and someone else is not able to make them or doesn't make them in a way that they make sense. There is something here about, oh, how can I tell this to you? Words and the self. Even when the poet is pretending, His words are still intelligible, and dare I say it, his words are still his. But there is a poetic nightmare ahead of us when your words are not your own, or when you're punished cruelly for your words, or when words are placed in mouths that are not their own. It is a poetic, a poet's nightmare that lies ahead of us and it starts with words that are malformed or not able to be formed into communication. This is a comment really on the growth of the poet in comedy because the poet is able to own his own words even when he's pretending whereas someone below us isn't even able to make sense. This will become incredibly important in the pit ahead of us. Let's look on in the passage. I don't know what it said, that voice down there, since I'd gotten to the apex of the bridge that crosses over at that spot. Notice again, much more architectural, but the one who spoke seemed to be on the move. All I wanna say here is that this is a very famous textual problem. There's a textual problem that goes on here that everybody talks about. And maybe it's important to just introduce you to it to say that, you know, the text, we're treating it as if it's a stable thing, but it is actually not stable underneath us because we don't have any copy of the comedy in Dante's own hand. And because we lack a copy in Dante's own hand, the text is a little unstable. There is a bit here that can be run as adire, meaning kind of on the run or moving. It was moved to move. The boy, one who spoke seemed to be I said on the move, but it's more like seem to be going on the move or move to be on the go, ad ire, but many commentators and many translators think that that should actually be ad ira, not ire go, but ira, anger, so that the one who spoke seemed to be angry and moving or seemed to be moved by anger. I'm going to go with the Petrochi text as I always do. I'm going to stick with it that the one who spoke seemed to be on the move. I realize it's hard to know how would you know from a voice of someone you can't see what about a voice would make it seem like they're on the move. Maybe the Doppler effect. (laughs) Dante wouldn't know anything about the Doppler effect, but you know what I mean, that it seems to be getting fainter or louder. Maybe that's how you would know, but uh, it's, it's hard to actually pin down what it actually means. But you should just know that there's a little bit of textual instability underneath us. It doesn't, I don't know, make much sense. I've read some commentators who desperately want it to be ad ira, out of anger, seem to be moved by anger, and then they want to connect the sin ahead of us to anger, and and they give all kinds of commentary on how it connects to anger. And I mean, yes, that's possible. And in fact, it might be more elegant than my simply sticking doggedly to the ad ira on the move. Nonetheless, I feel like we have to take a text and we have to bind ourselves to it, even though it itself may be slightly unstable. And that may be more than you want to know about the textual problems in comedy, but it's occasionally good to just remind you. That there's nothing in dante's hand and so we're dealing with texts that have been copied and there could be problems in the copying i should tell you that my reading of it seemed to be moved toward movement or seemed to be going toward movement is actually the reading advanced by dante's own son pietro di dante and then after pietro advances that reading Nobody else does for the longest time until Petrogi way up in the 20th century. Essentially, no one pays any attention to Dante's son and says, no, no, it's got to be anger. It's got to be anger. That's got to be it. So I'm just, I guess, aligning myself with Dante's son, but mostly I'm just sticking with the current Textus Receptus, although others are on the move toward us even as we speak. We'll talk about that if we ever get any of those texts while this podcast is going on. Let's just continue on with the passage. No matter how much I wanted to, my sharp eyes couldn't make out the bottom down there because of the darkness. So I said, Master, when you get to the next embankment, let's descend along the wall from this point. I hear something I can't understand, and I look down, and I can't construe anything. Although Virgil's intent, as we discussed in the last episode of this podcast, is to hurry up the pilgrim, and he becomes the voice of urgency in the poem, you will notice that the narrative has slowed down there is so much space here so much space when you go back up and look at let's say the cantos of lust or the cantos of gluttony or the cantos of anger and then you look at this there is so much space here about the climb out and oh i couldn't see anything and then it gets repeated i couldn't see anything and then he has to explain to virgil i couldn't see anything. The narrative has slowed down. And it is interesting that, on the whole, Virgil's voice of urgency occurs as the tempo of the storytelling slows down. Once we get to Mount Purgatory, the tempo of the storytelling will slow down dramatically, and we will have long speeches out of people's mouths, out of souls' mouths. <laughs> Thinking about you, Marco of Lombardy. we will have long speeches out of people's mouths and the narrative engine will slow as Virgil's insistence on hurrying up will become almost irritating, almost incessant. It's an interesting problem in the poem and it's an interesting thought problem that right after Virgil said to our pilgrim, hurry up. There's just so much space in this passage. I couldn't see anything, so then I told Virgil I couldn't see anything. If you were a good editor, you'd say to the writer, listen, pick one or the other. Either don't see anything and then have Virgil respond to it, or don't tell us you didn't see anything. Just tell Virgil and then have him respond to it. It's both here. And so the narrative engine, the narrative forward movement is slowed and will continue to slow here on out through Inferno and will even more slow up once we get to Purgatorio. But that's all ahead for us the emphasis in this passage is on seeing. It's on seeing and hearing, but seeing, given what's about to happen, there is much here to make sure we the readers understand that this is an eyewitness account. I can't see it. I need to see it. I better get in a place where I can see it. I gotta see it. Because what's about to happen in the poem itself is so unbelievable that this emphasis on the eyewitness account is proving overwhelming, and it's part of why the poem slows down right here. It slows down so we understand that the pilgrim got in a position to see what's ahead of us. I realize I'm not talking about what's ahead of us yet, but I'm just telling you that it's part of what's going on. There is just this insistence Uh, that I have got to be able to see this. I am an eyewitness to what's about to happen. And believe me, it's worth the delay. One more bit about this passage. After Dante says, let's move on and come down the wall a little bit so that I can see down into the pit because I can't see anything. I can't hear anything. I can't make out what's been said. Um, You can hear something, but I can't understand it. Virgil then gives this reply. The only reply he said that I'd give you is just to make it so for an honorable request should be met with an action done in silence (laughs) here I, Mark Scarborough, roll my eyes. I mean, Virgil, if it's to be done in silence, then shut up. Then do it in silence. You don't need to comment on it. However, (laughs) I always love this bit. When Virgil says, you know, the only proper reply is to do the action and not talk about it, meanwhile talking about it. I always think that there's a little bit of sarcasm going on here. Poor Virgil, he just can't shut up. I also think that there is an aphoristic quality to Virgil's speech, for an honorable request should be met with an action done in silence. That it, That's page-a-day calendar stuff. That's very, very pithy saying stuff. It's one of those emblems you can pull out a needlepoint and put on your wall. An honorable request should be met with an action done in silence. I'm not making fun of it. I'm saying that both the pilgrim, we had this last time, and now Virgil, are speaking in increasingly aphoristic ways, increasingly high meditative stylistic ways that bring out commonplaces for the living of life. That is actually a growing functionality of the poetics of comedy, and we're going to see it play out more and more ahead of us. And then just to tell you the whole thing, we're going to see it die out farther, farther, farther down the road from us. It's going to become, the poem is going to become more and more aphoristic as we move toward purgatory. When we get to purgatory, it's going to become very aphoristic. And as we move out of purgatory, it's going to stop being aphoristic and move into a different tonality altogether. And by the time we get way up into Paradiso, the aphoristic functionality of the poem, the the attempt to state things with pithy sayings will have just died completely. This partly is a notion of the growing, um, what do I wanna say, the growing concept of the reader's intellect. You weren't ready for daily wisdoms when you started Inferno, Dante, the poet, has got you to the point now where you are ready for these kind of life lessons. Your intellect has grown enough in your understanding of how the universe operates that you're ready for the page-a-day calendar. I know that sounds stupid, but okay, let me have it. The page-a-day calendar, and soon you will be beyond the page-a-day calendar, and your intellect will have grown to the point where you don't need aphorisms anymore, where you might even find them irritating. This is part of, I think, the overall response that the poet is hoping out of his readership. There is a way in which Inferno is slowly turning your will toward God, without a doubt God, and as your will starts to turn toward God and you start to understand the nature of evil and the under, understand the nature of what God requires, your intellect then behind it starts to turn toward God. And then there comes a point where your will is turned toward God, but your intellect is not. You still don't quite understand things. And then that's purgatorio. And then your intellect starts being pushed toward God, and then you hit Paradiso and your intellect has aligned with your will, and they're both directed toward God. It's the overall movement of the poem itself. And I would call you back to that moment way early on the slope in Canto 1 when Dante's walking along, dragging one foot while the other is moving or one foot is always stationary while the other is moving. And if you go back to that episode, of this podcast, I told you there that there may be a comment about will and intellect there with the feet. It goes back to St. Augustine. There may be a comment there about the pilgrim's ineffective will. It's just not developed enough yet to pull him along. And that brings us to this point which is the aphoristic stylistics that begin to erupt toward the back of Inferno continue out through Purgatorio and then slowly pass away as we get into Paradiso but that's all a long way ahead of us and to get there you gotta subscribe to this podcast if you don't mind rate it that would be fantastic if you're enjoying it I really appreciate a good comment from you it helps a great deal with the analytics thanks for doing that it's (laughs) it's just incredibly rewarding to me and it's it helps me Get up the motivation, <laughs> Dante. It's it's the way you could spur me on. It's your version of Vir- Virgil's tongue lash. <laughs> it's to spur me on to keep moving. In your case, I would hope it would be to say good things rather than Virgil's uh, rather austere commands to Dante to get moving. But anyway, it's your Virgil's role toward me. <laughs> so thanks for doing that. And otherwise, we're going to find out more about what's down in this pit in the next episode of this podcast we will see down into this evil pouch and we will realize that we have come in for far more than we ever bargained for. I'm Mark Scarborough. This is Walking with Dante.